Hello to everybody who's feeling depleted. It's beautiful shorties. It's half an hour. It's one phone call. It's no names. It's no holds barred. I'd rather go one-on-one. I think it'll be more fun. And I'll get to know you. And you'll get to know me. Hi, everybody. Chris Gathard here. Welcome to Beautiful Shorties. If you are just joining us with these shorties, they're half-hour calls. Why are we doing this? Because we filmed a video version of the show for a service called Topic. Go to topic.com if you want to want the info on how to see it. We used four of the calls we did, but we, we took many more calls than that. And Topic was super cool. It's letting us use all that audio, get these stories out to the world. And I am into that. I tell you, this one, I have not stopped thinking about it since we recorded this call. This is someone doing good work for the world, trying to help people in need and specifically uh, talks a lot about diapers. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm a dad. I had no idea what diapers really do and the effect that they can have. You'll, you'll see what I mean. This, this one was eye-opening to me. Thank you for calling Beautiful Anonymous. A beeping noise will indicate when you are on the show with the host. Hello? Hey. Hi. Chris? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So exciting. I didn't think I would ever get through. Welcome to the show. Thanks for uh thanks for calling in. It means a lot. Thanks. How are you doing? How am I doing? I tell you what, I'm uh a little tired, a little stressed out, but I'm also well aware that I have a very good life. How are you doing? A little tired, a little stressed out. Also aware I have a very good life. So we're right on the same that page. Is a, uh, yeah. It's Friday afternoon for you. Yeah. Yeah. What's, uh, what's going on? Well, I know you have a new baby. How's, how's that going? It's the best. It's, it's, he's such a joy. He likes to laugh. He likes to smile. You know, he's, Coming up, he's between ten and eleven months, so we're really getting a sense of his personality. And it's uh, he, my wife keeps saying he's go- he's clearly going to be the kid who like toilet papers the neighbor's house, and then when we force him to go apologize, he comes home with fresh baked cookies. Like he's going to be like a Ferris Bueller <laughs> bad kid. People, he nice. already is that, and it's the best. It's so much joy. That being said. Ooh, is it a lot of work? It is a lot of work, and there's a lot of fear and exhaustion involved. Oh my gosh, I'm sure I have so much respect for parents. Um, I actually, so I'm a, I'm a mental health researcher, and uh, right now I'm I'm doing uh, a lot of work with new moms, uh, specifically lower income moms um, here in the city where I'm located, and um, you know we're really looking at. The impact of diaper need on maternal depression and postpartum depression, and so you know, I figured you have you might have things to say about diapers, but also I think it's something that folks don't know a lot about. And you know, thinking about how it impacts you know both child health in terms of UTIs and diaper rashes, uh, but also how it impacts maternal depression. And actually, we found here in our city that. Diaper needs, so just not having enough diapers to change your baby as often as um, they need to be changed, 
was the greatest predictor of postpartum depression than food insecurity and housing instability. Wow. That's uh, that's shocking. So if I'm piecing it together, does this mean there are people who are lower income, they find that they can't afford the endless stream of diapers that one needs? And does it add to postpartum depression in the sense of makes people feel like they're unable to provide or that, you know, their their financial situation is making this innocent kid put their health on the line? Is it that type of stuff that just adds to the stress and the emotions? Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is like the first thing is there's no government entitlement or supports to purchase diapers. So, even if you um, receive SNAP, which is food stamps, or WIC, which is the Women's Infants and Children's Program um, of SNAP, uh, you can't buy diapers with that money. Really? Um, because because some probably old I mean, old white man who hasn't changed a diaper maybe ever, but at least in like the last sixty years, you know, wrote the federal guidelines of what you can and can't use these uh, resources for. And diapers are not considered a basic need for babies, which just like, when I found that out, I'm just like, this is the most bananas thing. Yeah. Literally the, literally the program is set up and has women's infants and children in its name. You can't buy diapers. That's shocking. So, People who are low income to the degree that they get assistance can't use right. it for the assistance they need. Right. That's, someone needs to fix that. Why is it so hard to fix these things? I know. It's, I know. A, it's illogical. Well, it is. It just doesn't make sense. Um, you know, and, and part of it is like moving, you know, federal policy is super hard, but you know, when, when my boss first, um, you know, did the initial research that showed it was a, um, a big predictor of postpartum depression, and she was talking about how, um, you know, we need to provide diapers or assistance for people to get diapers. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Rush Limbaugh said, well, that's a new, um, new definition of pampering the poor, which I was just like, this is so disgusting, but that's how people people think of it what a like gosh dickhead thing to say what a dick right it's, well it's also just like i'm gonna prioritize some cute catchphrase the pampering the poor right. pamper it's like that's your priority here come up with a little catchphrase come up with a hashtag instead of thinking about yeah. babies who have to sit around in shitty pissy diapers because their parents have to budget because they only have so many left and they they're like we got to let this kid ride this out as long as, because here's the thing that I know being a new parent, especially in those first few months, you got probably, if I'm remembering right, like my kid still goes through four or five diapers a day. Then it, back then it could be six, seven, eight a day. So if this is mm -hmm. a thing that you can't afford them, every single one that goes, you must be like counting it down in your head. And especially for newborns and especially for first time parents, there's a lot of situations where you take a diaper off, you're laying the next one out to use it, and the kid starts peeing into it before you can even get it onto him. 
because a lot of times when the kid, you know, for some reason, the instinct is like, oh, there's open air. Let me start peeing or farting or pooping. And me and my wife used to laugh. I used to call those two diaper jammers. I'd be like, that was, we've even had some three diaper jammers when the kid just keeps, you know, he'll start kicking and the diaper isn't even on yet. And then I look down and I'm like, oh, he's peeing everywhere. For me, I'm fortunate to have had some financial success in my life and some stability. But I can imagine if you've only got one bag of diapers and you don't know how you're going to afford your next one, every single one you throw in the garbage must cause stress. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's the thing that's like so challenging is like, one, you know, I'm sure you know, but when your baby is wet, especially if they're sitting in poop, like they tend to get fussy. If the baby has diaper rash, they're even more fussy, Ooh. so making it even harder to soothe the baby, you know. So if you don't have a clean diaper to put on, I mean, we I've I've talked to moms who, you know, just trying their best to be really good moms. You know, they're just in situations that are really difficult, and they're, you know, scooping out the poop and hanging the diaper up to dry and putting the diaper back on the baby or you know, using cloth, um, not cloth diapers, but just using cloth when they're in the house and just throwing that away. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, once it's, once it's dirty. But the other thing too is, right, so I mean, not only do you have a fussy baby and you're already stressed because, you know, you don't have a lot of resources and you can't use the resources you have to purchase these diapers, but, um, you know, most um, daycare centers or, or childcare centers require you, even if it's subsidized childcare, you require you to leave a week's worth of diapers up front. And if you don't have a week's worth of diaper, you can't, you know, (sighs) drop your baby off, which means you can't go to work. And right, we have all these new, uh, you know, work requirements for people who are getting um, Medicaid and different assistance. And I mean, it just turns into this um, shit show to be honest I didn't mean that as a as a pun but I mean kind of it worked uh, it worked as a pun and a point well done well done thanks thanks I'll take it <laughs> well this is one of the things it drives me nuts and again I'm just I'm a 40 year old white dude who's had it pretty easy in life I got a college education all these advantages and you sometimes see people putting stuff on the internet in particular. Oh man, all these people exploiting the system, these welfare systems, we got to cut them. And it's like, I am sure there are people who abuse the system. I'm sure you hear stories in New York, like a lot of the longstanding projects, you know, the housing um, that the city, like low income housing, a lot of those neighborhoods have gentrified and you hear about people who are like, you know, misreporting their income to stay in the housing because they now live in a neighborhood with, you know, that's got a lot going for it. You hear, I'm sure, but I have to imagine the large majority of people, people aren't signing up for government assistance because they want to live life like it's a vacation. The large majority of people aren't doing that. It's because they're slugging it out. And then you hear about things this is so eye-opening to me. You can't get that. Di- of course. Of course this feels like such a downhill tumble in your life. Same way that you hear everything you hear about the homeless in New York. It's like, should I donate money? Should I donate food? Everybody says, no, socks. Because what happens 
is people don't have socks. They walk around with wet feet. They get problems on their feet. It means physically they can't even work. It means there's all these smells, more social stigma. Socks, please, we need socks. You hear about, I hear so much about how a lot of what happens with the working poor in more remote regions is people have cars to get to work. Their cars are old. They can't afford a new car. The car breaks down. Now you can't get to work. Now you don't have a job. Now you're trying to just scrap together enough money to get, not to put into your new car, but to get your shitty car back up and running enough that you can maybe get another job. These loops that people get put in are unfair. And anybody who sits there and goes, people are just trying to live off my dime. It's like, these people have nothing. These people have nothing. And most people in that system, I have to imagine, are working as hard as they can to hold it together and get out of that system. And it drives me nuts when people judge the poor. Drives me nuts. It's just, yeah, I'm so, it's so, especially, I just want to be like, have you ever actually talked to someone who's receiving this assistance? Do you know how hard their life is? Do you know, I mean, I just, you know, I talked to my moms and I'm just like in all of them, you know, I've chosen to not have children. I have some mental health, you know, problems. And so that's, you know, a road that I've chosen not to go down. But um, you know, I have so much respect and admiration for parents because, I mean, one, it's by far the hardest job out there. Two, you know, you don't get paid anything to do it, but now you have to support, you know, and it's very expensive, Um to raise a family, but then also, I mean, these are people who, you know, are hustling and who are, you know, working super, super hard or trying to find ways to make enough money so they can be their kids, so they can buy diapers. But, you know, we make it so difficult for people to succeed and for people just to feel valued and feel respected. And, you know, people, a lot of my mom's you know, talk about, you know, just getting, being so judged, not just by everyone else in the, the public, but by the people who are providing, you know, these assistance uh, programs and just, you know, I'm just like, gosh, have you ever just talked to someone and like really, really heard their story and how they, you know, have come to the place where they are. And, you know, I look, I'm, you know, very fortunate, you know, white, well-educated. I'm a researcher in a, you know, large academic institution, but now if I were to lose my job, um, you know, my husband's blue collar and we don't pay, you know, blue collar workers that much. I mean, we'd be, you know, if I were to lose my job and couldn't find gainful employment, you know, six months from now, we couldn't pay our mortgage. You know, I think we all just have this delusion, you know, people who are gainfully employed or who have a white privilege and all these things that, you know, oh, this would never happen to us and I'm better and, just, you know, I work hard and so therefore I deserve all the things I have. But it, you know, I just, it, yeah, just blows my mind. Oh, Chris, get so angry. Now I'm going to admit something to you. And this is a yeah. story I'm not proud of. And I've thought about it often. And especially, it happened years ago, especially since my son was born. Think about this. This is one of the early breaking points that made me realize maybe I don't need to be a New Yorker for much longer. Because a, a few years ago, I was walking down a street in New York. It was at night. And New Yorkers, you know, they're, 
there are a lot of people on the streets who are clearly very needy people. And we're told over, we, we are socially trained to ignore them. And we are told over and over again that there are social programs in place and that those programs will help people. And, and you can't give money to people on the streets because you don't know what the money's going towards. You hear all this stuff. It's become very socially conditioned. I was walking down a street and I walked past a CVS and there was a couple holding a baby. They said to me, hey man, do you have any money? And I just did the New Yorker thing where I said, no, sorry. And uh, they, they said, we just need supplies. We just need baby stuff. We're just using it for baby stuff. And as a New Yorker, you get conditioned to go, this must be a scam. This must be a scam. Everything you hear, people come up and everybody's got a story and you just become conditioned. And I just kept walking and I got on the train and went home. And that has, that has haunted me. That has haunted me for years because I still think they were holding a baby. I could have walked in there and just said, I could have said, I still think about it. I could have said, I'm not, I can't give you money, but if you want to walk in here and pick out a whole bunch of stuff you need, it I was at a point in my life where it wouldn't have been any skin off my back if those people walked out there with some wipes and some diapers and some ointments. And I just feel like being in this city that makes you cold, my instinct sent me in the wrong direction. And it's still, I still feel so bad. You said a lot of emotionally raw things in the history of Beautiful Anonymous. That has to be up there at the top of the list. It's very true, though really really true anyway i've broken the momentum and on the heels of that sadness why not some ads okay everybody thanks to our advertisers now let's finish off this wonderful phone call i just feel like being in this city that makes you cold my instinct sent me in the wrong direction and it's still i still feel so bad like such a yeah I can imagine especially in, in New York but you know it's, it is such a tough situation because you don't know what the best you know, best thing to do because we are told these stories don't give people cash don't get you know they're and and you know but I think to the degree that you know you can you know if it's nothing off to walk them you know walk with them into CVS and say hey you know whatever you need you pick it out I mean you don't have to pick it out for them but you know, yeah. let them pick it out or let them say, you know, that's what I do where, where I live mostly around food is, you know, the place where people are is like kind of our like downtown main street. And, you know, they're always asking for money for food. And, you know, I'm like, you want to walk into Shake Shack? I'll, you know, get you a burger. You want, you know, these different things. And some people want it, some people don't. And, you know, they just need the money for other things. And, Sometimes I, if I have, you know, sometimes I give them money, sometimes I don't. It's, it's hard. It's hard. You know, it's a difficult thing. But I think the thing is like, right, like when you stop and you see someone, like that's an actual person, um, you know, it just, yeah, it sticks with you, these decisions. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a tough one. It's so tough. But I think this is a thing is like, you know, people are people are people. And, you know, especially white people, you know, we benefit so much from a system that is, that is, you know, structured to dehumanize others and to, to, you know, um, you know, 
racism and all sorts of disadvantages that, you know, we're like, oh, well, within myself, it's because I'm such an exceptional person that I have all these things versus like, no, like so much is afforded to me that I don't deserve. I've had so many opportunities that, you know, have, I am, I'm thankful for, um, I'm putting in a position, you know, that, you know, I'm, I'm not living on the streets, but also I think we need to get rid of the delusion that like we are exceptional people, and this is why we're not experiencing those things versus just life is real hard and certain groups of people are, you know, disenfranchised and because we don't like to share power and we don't like to give up power. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Amen. Sorry, I feel like I feel like I'm on a soapbox now. I Good. gotta step off it. It's, <laughs> not, it's a mind-opening soapbox. I had no idea. It's one of those things where I had no idea it was an issue. And then as soon as you describe it, I'm like, makes total sense. Those things are expensive and you need an endless supply. Makes sense. Now, you mentioned I mean, you have infants, the soap. Like, oh, no, go for it. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, well, I was, was going to say, say, you know, like infants. Go ahead. You go ahead. I need to step off. I'm going to step off. I was just going to say, you mentioned you feel like you're on a soapbox. And I do feel like I should ask you at some point, outside of your research and your issue, which is one that has both of us fired up, outside of that, don't. Mm-hmm. What's your deal? My deal? Um, yeah, so, I mean, I'm, you know, just a, just a person hanging out. But like I said, you know, I do mental health research, but I also am a person who struggles with really, really severe depression. Um, and so, you know, I've dealt with that and I know you've been so open, um, you know, about stuff you've struggled with. And, and, um, the, I think the thing I love the most about the podcast is I actually was introduced to it when I was coming out of a, a pretty severe episode a few years ago. And I was, you know, I had been so depressed for so long that I was very, very isolated because just out of necessity, I needed to make my world very, very small. And then listening to your podcast, it's just normal everyday people talking about who they are and what they do and sharing their stories and, you know, everything from talking about like poop to, you know, losing your child to cancer. It, it really helps me get out of this isolated place and just remember like, oh, there's a world out there. There are people, good people out there. Um, and just not, you know, I, I wasn't, when I was first introduced to it, I wasn't in a place where I could really, um, I was so depleted. I just felt like I didn't have anything else to give to people. Um, but the isolation wasn't helping either. And like, I think your podcast just, you know, it, no matter what it is, no matter what episode it is, you know, help people not be alone, you know? Um, well, I'm happy to help, and I'm happy you're feeling better. Were you were you doing the work you're doing before that? Because I, I tell you, my shrink told me this years ago, and it blew my mind. She said, when one of the first signs you're coming out of a se- severe depression is that you feel very motivated to help others, and you are now someone who helps others and, and doing research that can help turn others' lives around. Do you feel like those are uh, tied together? Yeah, I mean, so I've been doing, you know, mental health research broadly for the past, you know, nine years at a university. And, you know, I started this pretty radical place. um, And, you know, that really was all about 
um, you know, people with lived experiences of mental illness as experts in what it is like to live and experts in their lives. And so it was the first time I'd ever been around people who really valued and um, really valued people who who had these experiences. And I had a lot of trouble growing up and was in and out of hospitals during high school and um, you know, I actually graduated high school from a hospital, which is crazy. Wow. <laughs> my psychiatrist, my psychiatrist in the hospital is like, the insurance company says I either have to send you to a residential facility or discharge you. Do you want to go to college or do you want to go to a hospital across the country and be there for at least a year? And I was like, I had already been in the hospital a month. And I was like, well, you know, this place sucks. So I guess I'll go to college, which is, wow. you know, so crazy. It was like such a crazy, you know, and I look back and I'm like, that was such a crazy, you know, those are two. So like could change my trajectory of my life significantly. And, you know, what an odd um, question to ask someone. But also, you know, I had a psychiatrist who saw something in me and, you know, I was smart and was getting into getting, you know, acceptance letters while I was in the hospital. And, you know, I, I did go to college. I had to leave my first semester because I was n- in no way prepared to be living on my own. Um, but I had a taste of something that I wanted really badly. And I know you don't like higher ed so much, but it was my <laughs> saving grace. Um, I got to like, stop I, saying I, that. I, I got to stop saying that. I know. But, you know, I was at, I was at my school for like, two or three weeks and then I had to come back home because I was hurting myself and just, um, you know, I needed a lot more support than I had there, but I had a taste of something that I wanted so badly. I was very motivated, you know, to try to, you know, get, get myself back in control, find better coping strategies, um, you know, and and ended up going back in the spring semester and graduated you know, on time with, with my class. Good for you. Um, for me, it yeah, was, so, but, but, Oh, go but, for it. No, I was going to just say for me, it was, a it was a good shrink and a bunch of medication. What got you over the hump? Yeah. So I think in college, you know, it was, you know, it was this, I had found a good therapist. I had some good, finally worked my meds out. Um, but I also just had, um, really good social connections where I went to school and people who just loved me and supported me and my professors who I'm still actually very close with, you know, really invested in me, not just as a student, but as, as a, as a person and school is something that I like. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm a researcher now, so, um, but there was something of like, it was something that I was naturally good at. And so also just kind of developing this sense of mastery while kind of doing all these other things. So I think it was, you know, friends and feeling like I belonged and, um, you know, and then since then I've had, you know, kind of different struggles. Um, but I, you know, the ordeal that was 2016, 2017 was, you know, probably by far my most um, serious uh, episode. And what actually got me over the line there um, was ketamine. Um, 
Ketamine. Finally, you know, found. Yeah. Special K. Special K. The K hole. Yeah. Didn't see that coming. Oh, K holes suck, man. Oh, oh. Even under a doctor's care, K-hole you can slip suck. into the K hole. For anybody listening or watching, the ketamine is is a type of animal tranquilizer that that a lot of people abuse, and it's known to be pretty hardcore. But there's been I don't know if it's like full spread or if it's clinical trials, but people use it for mental health now under a doctor's supervision. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I actually was in a clinical trial um, and that's how, where I'm at, you know, is a large research university. And so it was a clinical trial that I participated in um, and I responded really well to the treatment. And then because it was in a clinical trial, I couldn't get it outside of the trial. So then I ended up, you know, falling back into a really severe depression. And, um, you know, I had really at this point tried almost everything, tons of medications. I was like running all the time and making sure I was eating healthy and doing everything, you know, that I could do, um, but just kept getting more and more and more depressed. And, you know, to the point where it was like, um, you know, know, just chronically suicidal and exhausted because trying to function and like live your life while also trying to not kill yourself when you're really, really depressed is exhausting. Yeah, you're Um, telling me. You know, it's so exhausting. And so, you know, I met with a colleague because I was just like, I don't know what else to do. And, And he sat down with me and was like, you know, you need to go to the hospital. Oh, sorry. That's okay. We'll bleep it. Whatever. Um, You know, he was like, you need to go to the hospital and, you know, suggest that I start electroconvulsive therapy. And actually that's what I did um, because I just couldn't access ketamine. And this was in 2016. Um, It's now a version of ketamine has been FDA approved and you can get clinically. But um, at that point it hadn't. And, you know, I, I was in the hospital for a month. I had 10 treat, ECT treatments. So for those of you who don't know, um, you know, it's electroconvulsive therapy. And basically they put you under anesthesia and give you a muscle relaxer and literally electrocute, you know, your, uh, your brain to induce a seizure. And, you know, we're not really sure why it works. It's kind of, you know, the hypothesis is it's a little bit of a hard reset. Um, And it is like for people who don't respond to medications, it it is the best treatment we have. Um, And unfortunately, I was one of those people who didn't didn't respond. So I ended up getting discharged from the hospital and was still getting it outpatient after 17 treatments wasn't getting better. And so um, I was fortunate that the the place where I was getting my ECP outpatient also does ketamine. And so, um, you know, I was able to get that um, through there. It was hard because my insurance wouldn't cover it and it's expensive to pay out of pocket. Um, But through a lot of good luck and um, advocacy from my doctors and really all of us just being like there's not many other options um, I've, I've actually been able to receive free care. Um, and so the hospital gives me ketamine treatment still. Actually, I had one yesterday um, for free, which I know is like such a privileged, um, God, just like 
this is such a privileged thing and so lucky um, that that happens. And, um, I mean, it's dramatically changed my life. Um, you know, but I think that experience, one, has just profoundly changed me. Um, and, uh, you know, I think has really, it relates a little bit to my soapbox earlier of, you know, people are just trying their best to get by. And I know that if I didn't have access to free care, I wouldn't be here. And that is, um, I mean, it's a problem with our medical system and how it's set up, but also like man has like really, really made me so much more passionate and compassionate towards people of just like, you know, it's really shattered this. If you try hard enough, you can make it happen. You know, I was in this, like, you know, I could will my way out of this depression and I, I couldn't, um, yeah, so that's what's going on with me. Well, that was a series of stunning turns. We're actually out of time. I'm so uh, damn. Well, yeah, no, I'm so glad fine. you're okay. I'm so glad you're doing better. I find it remarkable that you're helping other people. And I got to say, what a good conversation! Twenty five minutes on diapers, and then a five minute thumbs up to ketamine. That was a hell of a call. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, sure. It was so great to talk with you. Uh, you're doing such good work. Not and, like uh, you are. You're doing yeah. the good work. I'm just an idiot with a podcast, uh, but thank you. Well, thank you. Caller, thanks again. And I tell you, I, um, I, I think a lot about your call. We, we recorded a long time ago. And... I found it unbelievable, and I remember I remember ways that I've messed up, and I want to do better. I want to do better. Thank you for uh, lighting that fire under me. Thanks for calling, sharing your story. Thanks to Jared O'Connell. Thanks to Anita Flores, Jordan Allen. Thank you, Topic. Thank you, Shell Shag, for the music. Thank you to everybody for listening. ChrisGeth.com. If you want to know more about me, talk to you next time. <laughs>